the subject tonight is discipleship. Now, I gave you an outline there, and on that outline, hopefully we'll get to it this evening, uh, you have ten things what a disciple looks like. But before we get into that, I am going to cover the call to discipleship. And a disciple, where to begin? We're going to begin with the Great Commission. Do you guys know where the Great Commission is listed? Matthew. That's right. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. And you might want to just grab a Bible, open that up, take out a pen if you can take some notes. And you can take notes on the back of your outline that you have there that we'll eventually get to. And naturally, you sit down and you look at what a disciple is. Is it possible to believe in God and not be a disciple? Uh, the answer is yes. It is possible to believe in God and not be a disciple. But God calls us to be disciples. He doesn't want anybody just simply to believe and not mature in the faith. Being a disciple is what Christ commands every believer to become. This is equivalent to becoming fully mature in the faith. If somebody says, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, they can be at various stages, but when you get to fruition in your walk as a disciple, you will be fully mature. And I'll talk about that mature uh, person in their faith and what they look like. But God provided for us an avenue to maturity. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, it says, he, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So God wants us to be built up to the point where we are independent as we have children and those children are growing up, we eventually want them to mature to the point they can get their own job, they can pay their own rent, they can do their own laundry, they can go grocery shopping for themselves, and they are fully mature. If they move back in, which in this day and age, a lot of uh, millennials are moving back into their parents' home or they have never left their parents' home, they still really haven't flown the coop and they make movies about this i think matthew mcconaughey had a movie failure to launch or something like that where he just don't get out and christ wants us to be able to get out and be independent of everyone else around us being fully mature god not only provided for us an avenue to maturity he explains that he desires for us to reach this maturity and if in colossians chapter 4 verse 12 there was Epaphras, who is one of you, it reads, and a servant of Christ who sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So this maturity is something that we should focus on if we feel we are immature. We need to be getting to the point where we are self-sufficient. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 says, But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil and also james 1 uh, chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 consider it pure joy my brothers whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything and so being fully mature is able to function and problem solve both old 
and new problems correctly and independently. Now, I'm going to relate this to give you an illustration of this in the landscaping field. In the landscaping field, I was trained by my brother. I went to school for it, and I've been doing it for 43 years, so I, I have a couple of tricks under my belt. And a couple of those tricks are, and I had an employee ask me about this once. Uh, since I'd been doing it so long, I figured out some tricks. And one of them is you can take a piece of PVC pipe. Now, you guys all know what PVC pipe is. And you cut it with a saw. And once you cut it with a saw, you have all of these burrs on it. If you don't clean off those burrs, when you put the pipe back together, those burrs will get into the system, and eventually they'll get to the heads, and it will clog the screens in the heads, and then you have to go through and clean all the heads. And so the goal is to get the burrs off before you fit the pipe together. Now, there's a couple of ways to do that. Back in the late 70s, they developed this thing that looked like an inverted cone, and it had little sharp edges on it, and you would stick it in the pipe, and you would turn it this way and flip it over and turn it on the outside. That's one way to do it. And you can also take your hand, and if you take your hand around a piece of pipe, usually you get a cut because there is a sharp edge on that PVC pipe. And so one day I was sitting there going, okay, I've been doing this for a long time. How do I clean this without having a tool, which is another thing you have to keep track of, without cutting my finger open? I could grab a rag, but then I have to carry around a rag with me. How do I do that? And so I put the pipe together, and I offset it, and I just wound it around each other on the ends of it. And I did that, and I go, that's pretty handy. I just used the pipe itself to clean, clean itself. And one of the guys who was working with me, a foreman, he goes, who taught you that? And I said, nobody taught me that. I just figured it out. He goes, no, you didn't. I, <laughs> sa I said, yeah, I, I just figured it out. And the same thing applies with Christianity. You work at your Christian walk for so long that when a problem comes along that may be new for you, you end up having the skills to figure out how you solve the problem. That's being fully mature. You don't have to go to somebody and say, let's see, how am I going to handle this? Like, for instance, um, I'll give you guys a little bit of a dilemma. You have a couple that's been living together for 10 years, and that couple between them, they have a child, and they are not married. And the Lord says, if you find somebody living like that, it's quote-unquote living in sin. And they come to you and say, Pastor, how do we solve this? We think we'd like to get married, but probably not for uh, several months. Would you say they need to separate, move out of the house, disrupt the household, that they have no physical relationship whatsoever, they back up the uh, train, so to speak, where they're just dating, and you encourage them to do that? Or is there another way to work at it to where that isn't disruptive. Now, somebody who is fully mature would come up with an idea that might satisfy both the sin problem as well as the economic problem that would result inside of the household, especially if only one person is working and then they have to have two places that they're renting or maybe move into somebody else's house. There's all kinds of avenues. Now, I'll let you think about that one, how you might solve that particular kind of problem, but that's what it means to be fully mature. You're, you don't have to go to somebody and say, okay, look, we need to satisfy these issues in Scripture. 
to do it the way God wants us to do it. But we want to make sure we don't put an additional burden that would be onerous, that may cause the person to just walk away from the faith or walk away from the church. And so that's how we determine if somebody is mature. They're able to figure things out based on Scripture and what the Lord would be satisfied with. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, a student is not above his master, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. And so we are supposed to try to be like our teacher, Jesus Christ. But God, as it says in Ephesians, he provided all these different ministries or these ministers for the building up of the body of Christ so that we can get assistance along the way, just as you would go to uh, high school or college or junior college or university or graduate school. Those people will help provide for you information on how to become fully mature in any type of uh, academic pursuit that you would like to go through. For instance, as a soldier or an athlete, they must train in order to compete and to be fully competent. We also, as believers, must train in order to live a life for God. That training requires us, and I'll get into some of this in a minute, but it requires us to be in the Word. It requires us to be in fellowship. It requires us not to be slack. And you know what it is if somebody is slack, and I'll give you a scripture in a minute uh, with that. If somebody is slack and they work for you, I was just over at uh, one of the businesses here in Lakeside, and I was talking to somebody who's behind the counter, and they have a bunch of new employees, and they're like ants running around everywhere. And I, I turned to him uh, whimsically and said, you need to get some more employees around here. And he kind of chuckled and he goes, you know, I just don't know what's going on. It's like the, the business is just busting at the seams. But regret, regrettably, he said he had to fire somebody the last week because it was like smoke in the eyes. You know, it was like a problem. The guy was slack in his job. And as Christians, we're not supposed to be slack because... We are not working for the pastor or the elders or somebody else inside the church. We're, in fact, working for Jesus Christ. And Jesus lets us know that we have the ability to become mature, but also we're supposed to carry out this walk of discipleship with vision, forethought, determination, and perseverance. If we don't do that, we are only putting forth half an effort, and God wants us to put forth a large effort. And if we are doing that, we'll end up gaining great assurance of our faith and our membership inside the body of Christ. Have you ever been at the point where you question your own salvation, where you go, am I really in the body of Christ? Well, if you do that, you want to go back and you ask yourself, are you bearing fruit? If you're bearing fruit and you are following all the steps that God requires of us inside of the scripture, you have this great assurance that you belong to the body of Christ. If you're keeping his commands, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And, of course, that was Jesus Christ referring to those who were saying that his family wanted to see him outside. So to summarize these points a little bit, God wants us to be involved in spiritual training. And being a disciple is basically you're in training. And God wants us to be fully mature where we are able to solve problems. And in short, God wants us to be a disciple. Now, God does command that we become and that we make disciples. And how does this happen? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is the Great Commission. 
says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I started dissecting this, doing an inductive Bible study. And I thought, there is so much here. I could take three weeks or four weeks just on the material that's in here. And by way of comparison, when God says, I want you to go out and make disciples, it is implicit in the text that who he is talking to, they are already disciples. A teacher can only raise up a teacher. A machinist can only raise up a machinist. An electrician can only raise up an electrician. Only an engineer can raise up an engineer. And only a disciple can raise up another disciple. And once we become a disciple, God wants us to replicate. Now, I'm going to give you six things here. These six things are, and it's based on Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and beyond. There is the authority of Christ, and I'll repeat these. There is the authority of Christ, number one. Number two, the area of obligation. Number three, affirmation of affiliation. Number four, application of instruction. Number five, assurance of companionship. And number, oh, no, it's only five. I'm going back to number one, the authority of Christ. And I'll repeat these again. Now, the authority of Christ in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the predicate to go out and make disciples. Why is he telling us, that he has all authority. And all authority, we know, has been given to him by God the Father. Why, why did he put this in here? Well, he wanted us to know there is no greater authority than that of Jesus Christ. All authority he has possessed, or he possesses has been given to him by God the Father. So that's a big deal. We all have authorities in our lives, whether it's our bosses, the people we work for, it could be a parent. It, it could be somebody else who is in authority if somebody's in the military. There is always somebody in authority above us. And those people who are in authority above us have the right to direct our actions to some degree. If you are in this country and somebody comes to you and says, you must not proselytize. In other words, you must not evangelize and make disciples. No matter who they are, they do not have the same authority as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ started this verse out in 18 by saying, I am the ultimate authority. That's what he declares. And so if somebody comes out who is a lower authority, they cannot tell you not to proselytize. Now, they can kind of direct you as far as your job is concerned. You know, you can break certain um, modes of good business, right? Uh, I used to have some employees that they were so on fire for Christ that they would not do their work. And so I would have to tell them, look, you can meet afterwards, and I encourage you to do that and proselytize, but we got a job to do here, and we need to be a good witness. And so it's not that I would ever tell them, stop it, you're not allowed to, I'd say just put it off and be a good witness in your job. Now that can be in a workplace, that can be in the military, that can be in several different places, but they cannot tell you do not do it 
because the ultimate authority, which is Jesus Christ, says to do it. Now, Jesus has the authority over life and death. And because of the authority Christ Jesus possesses, we are to be in submission to him. We are also to be in submission to the governing authorities. And that says in Romans, it says that in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, but those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And so it's clear from Scripture we are to be submissive to those governments, but if those governments ever say you do not have the right and you have to be careful when you exercise the right, but they cannot tell you do not proselytize, do not make disciples because Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority and he is the one that has told us to do it. So we just be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and we find a way to proselytize and to make disciples. Now John and Peter experienced this very dilemma where they were taken in by the Sanhedrin and they were told not to speak of Jesus Christ after the crucifixion. And they were commanded not to do so. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And so if somebody's telling you and threatening you if you're going to make disciples or if you're going to evangelize, if they're saying it's going to mean your job, there may be a point where you say, okay, it means my job. There may be a point where you say, okay, I'm going to pull back and I'm going to do this at another time. But the fact still remains, you are free to do it. Especially if you go to um, Yemen, the country of Yemen. If you want to proselytize, you better be wise in doing so because it's the death penalty there if you are caught. And so they cannot tell you not to do it, and there are going to be repercussions for you going out evangelizing and making disciples, but you have to be wise because you don't want to die in the middle of it. What good is it if you're a dead disciple? It doesn't do anyone around you any good at all. And so you want to be exercising wisdom here. So the application of this is it is implicit in the passage that the command is given to those who are already disciples. Also because of the authority that Christ Jesus has received from the Father, we have a command, not a suggestion, to make disciples. Next to worshiping God, this is the primary task of the church. This is the Great Commission. If a law is passed by the government, whether our own or a foreign government, which is designed to prevent us from evangelizing and making disciples, we are to ignore it with quotations using wisdom. If a governing official in the federal, state, city, or local uh, governments command us to stop evangelizing and making disciples, we are to ignore it. But again, using wisdom in doing so. And if a family member, a friend an acquaintance or an enemy pressures us to stop evangelizing or making disciples, we are again to ignore it. An example of using wisdom, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, says, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So see, even Jesus says, look, if you're going to be persecuted in the midst of doing this, save your own life and get out there and evangelize whenever you can. Save your own job, but get out there and evangelize. And if somebody doesn't want to receive it, and this is the biggest thing, if you try to give somebody the gospel and they don't want it, don't pester them 
with the gospel, that you're just casting your pearls before swine. I once saw a television broadcast, a news broadcast, where this guy, on fire Christian, that's wonderful, he goes into this house, they hired him to paint, and you saw this young mother, she's carrying this baby, and all this guy is doing is talking about Christ the whole time he's painting the inside of her house. And she's talking right into the camera going, I wish he would just shut up and do his job. And the guy was trying to be a witness over the camera. It's like, you're acting foolishly as a Christian. Just keep your mouth shut. If she doesn't want to hear it, move on to the next person, do your job, and be a good witness about it. Don't pester the people. Because the cross is an offense to those who are perishing. You know, it would just drive me up a wall if somebody was trying to convert me to Buddhism or to become a Muslim. And look, I don't want it. Don't, don't want to talk about it, all right? And they can just go on their merry way. But let's be wise in making disciples and carrying out the commission to carry the gospel to everyone. Um, also, by the way, all of these actions with these governments or the people around us or friends and family, it comes with a consequence if you wish to make a disciple. And a disciple must count the cost in doing so. Uh, we have been instructed about this concerning making disciples by Christ himself. And Christ told us that he came to bring a sword of division. And the members of your own household will be your enemies. It says, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her father-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And by the way, that means if anyone loves his father or mother more, you're supposed to love them less than you are to love Jesus Christ. It's not that you're supposed to give up loving them. It just means love them less. They are secondary to Jesus Christ. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's Matthew chapter 10, uh, going from 34 to 39. So based on the supreme authority of Jesus Christ, which was given to him by the God the Father, we have a commission to go and make disciples. That's the first one. The second one is an area of obligation. There in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This word nations here is ethnos, where we get the English word ethnic, where we also translate the word out of ethnic, race. So we are supposed to go to all races, all people groups, and we are supposed to make disciples. I know of a very uh, good pastor. He once said, what are all the, and he's in Calvary Chapel, and he said, what are all these pastors doing going around the world and all that? You know, what, what about the people right where you live? Well, we are supposed to minister to the people around our community. There's no question about that, but I think you guys are familiar enough with the idea that we are supposed to be a witness for Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Lakeside, San Diego, the state, the country, the entire world. And so we're not supposed to be limited to one place. If all the Christians throughout the world went to the uttermost parts, the entire world would be blanketed. If we only go to our own communities, there are going to be a lot of communities that are never going to be reached especially in the 1040 window, the areas where the Muslims live around the world. 
And so God calls us to go there. The next time we go to Cambodia, I'm going to talk to Drew about going into the Muslim areas in Cambodia and just dropping off tracks, just passing them out. And God calls us to do that. And I talked to uh, Drew with, uh, about Pastor Hung, and he's asked Pastor Hung, let's go in there, let's do a medical clinic. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. So let's just get out, let's just take the tracks and hand him the tracks. I don't think that they're going to go all, quote, unquote, jihad on us if we're just passing out the tracks. And so we are commanded to go give the gospel and try to make disciples. And it, by the way, it's, it's pretty exciting when you do something like that. You get all nervous on the inside and you pass them out. And this last trip, they had a Buddhist monk accept Christ. You know, and these Buddhist monks, they don't believe in God. They believe you go to the oneness, which is out there in the universe. And, and it's just kind of crazy what they believe. But anyhow, they are getting saved as well. And that's what it's all about. So not only are our own communities supposed to be affected by our witness, but to the uttermost parts of the earth, as far as you can get away from your own community... Do it, but also minister to the community in which you reside. So go everywhere to evangelize and make disciples. That is the area of obligation. Thirdly, area of affiliation. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, the second half. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to affirm the fact that somebody wants to be a disciple They have received Christ, evangelism, or an evangelist has done his job, and now, as a sign of affirmation and affiliation, the person is supposed to get baptized. The person who is a believer that has accepted Christ that doesn't get baptized when they find out it's a requirement for discipleship, that individual is being disobedient. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why somebody won't get baptized. Of course, there's ignorance. I didn't know I was supposed to be baptized. Well, the person that evangelized them should have let them know this is the first step in the process of being a Christian. And it is an affirmation that you are being affiliated with the body of Christ. You are identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. And some people will say, well, I... I don't have the right bathing suit. I'm I'm going to be so embarrassed being in front of everybody. We have no excuse. Christ says just to do it. And I believe the mode of baptism, as you've probably heard me explain before, is dunk all the way, all the way down in the water and bring them all the way up. And we can talk about the sprinkling and the pouring on. If there's some cases where the person can't be dunked, I'm totally for that. It's the idea that there are people in a public arena that are witnessing what's going on. It's not just one person there witnessing what has taken place. And we identify with the suffering, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that act of baptism. In the Old Testament, the identification mark was circumcision. In the New Testament, the identification mark of being a Christian is baptism. And I've already told you what that symbolizes, but also in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it talks about the fact that We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And so that's the purpose of baptism. And so the baptism, it doesn't save you. It is just simply a work that you do as a disciple that is commanded by Jesus Christ. And if somebody doesn't do the baptism, which is the primary uh, task that we're supposed to carry out when we first get saved, 
and just as a side note, I know that there are even Calvary chapels that say, we want you to go through this class first to understand what you're doing fully. People don't even understand the Trinity when they get saved, right? They don't understand that maybe Jesus is God in human form, although it may be explained in the process of evangelizing them. They don't understand it all. It's just a simple act of obedience. You just go forward and you do it. Usually the understanding of that comes later. That's what it means to be a disciple. God just says, you get saved, you get baptized. There's a, a famous guy called the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading on his chariot and he didn't understand what was going on and of course one of the disciples came along to him and explained to him what was going on and, and he said who, who can stop me from being baptized he got saved right then and went right down to the river and got baptized if we had a baptismal in here we'd open it up maybe once a month once every service and we'd get people dunked we just don't have that luxury to have a nice pool maybe we can put one out back and we'll call it a church uh right off and we'll just get a lap pool going in there whatever we want to do but we'd get people baptized right away it's simply an act of obedience now with this it does symbolize as i said the suffering death burial and resurrection of jesus christ when we go through the baptism but it also and i i don't want you guys to miss this it's the idea of suffering Uh, luke chapter 14 and verse 27 says and anyone who does not carry his cross and cannot be a follower of me he cannot be my disciple jesus told us that we have to be willing to suffer for him now jesus before he died he obviously suffered and we're supposed to be able to identify with that in the book of philippians it says the suffering has been given to us as a privilege we have a privilege to represent christ in this way now going on here to summarize this at least the last three um things that I've given you which are what's the first one class first one is authority of Christ area of obligation and affirmation of affiliation I'm going to give you those applications for each one of those again uh, Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority and has instructed disciples to go and make disciples that's number one number two we are to go into all the world to make these disciples and number three disciples are to be those who get baptized which symbolizes the suffering physical death burial and resurrection of Christ fourth application of instruction in verse 20 it says and teaching them in Matthew chapter 28 and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you now this seems to be one of the most difficult aspects of being a disciple And we are simply being obedient to the teaching of Christ. That's what this means. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, what has Christ commanded us? Of course, we have the Ten Commandments, right? But he has also taught us to do his will. It is command that we do his will. It is command that we avoid sexual immorality. It is a command that we avoid sin in all forms. It says that specifically in Scripture. And so as we read the scripture, we see what his commands are. We see what his teachings are. We are to absorb those as disciples, and we are to disseminate those to those who would like to be disciples, who have put their hand to the plow and saying, I'm going to follow Christ. Now, those things involved learning doctrine. Now, if you watch your life and your doctrine closely, you'll save not only yourself, but your hearers as well. Paul told that to Timothy. 
And the doctrines of the church involve things like, and I've given you this before, but I just want to reiterate this, all questions that people have fall into normally four categories. The first one is origin. The second one is morality. The third one is meaning. And the last one is destiny. If somebody is, is a disciple, usually one of the things they want to know is, so how did all this start? I mean, how did, how did we get to the point where we exist and then we just die and we're supposed to instruct them? Now, class, I would ask you, where would you go in the Scripture to instruct somebody about the fall? I hear you whispering it. Genesis. Right, so you have to go back to the beginning of the Bible and you have to discuss, well, what happened We were perfect. God did not want us to be people who died. He wanted us to have eternal life, but sin came. And so we explain the fall. We explain original sin. We go to the book of Romans and we say how sin entered the world through one man and through that one man death also came over the entire human race. So we explain that to people. And those people who want to become disciples, they gain wisdom in that. They go, oh, I get it. We didn't evolve? No, we didn't evolve. You know, I, th- I once, uh, when I was gone, I was listening to several different things, and one of the things I listened to, I actually, I think I read this. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And the scientists say, no, the egg came first. And I'm going, no! You know, I'm just screaming out as I'm listening or reading that. I forget which one it was. But they lined out all of their clever reasoning why the egg had to come first. And Scripture clearly, clearly declares it was the chicken that came first. It was the full tree that came first. It was the full adult male that came first. And then the full adult female. It wasn't the babies that came first. And Scripture tells us that. But, that, you know, uh, one of these things, too, and I, I love reading about this stuff. I love reading about the universe and uh, Dr. Michio Kaku. Did you hear what he recently said about the universe? Uh, he was and, and these things we need to teach disciples, too. Because if, if disciples, usually uh, most people get saved when they're younger. When they go to school, they, I had one uh, teacher at West Hills challenge the parents on parent night about creation versus evolution. And she goes, you want to go there? Yeah, I do. I want to go there. And so she was teaching my kids about evolution, that that's the way. And my kids would come home and I'd say, this is the way here. And I would teach them about creation. I'd say, now go back and ask this question. And they'd go back and it was kind of a fun interchange uh, during that time. But Dr. Michio, Michio Kaku Maybe you've seen him on television. He is the uh, Asian guy with the white hair that goes down. He was saying in this uh, video broadcast, a podcast, that whoever created the universe was a mathematician. And he started talking about string theory and all this kind of stuff. But it, it, and I've often taught this, that the laws of geometry exist in spite of us. We didn't create it, and Michio Kaku made the mistake talking about uh, how calculus was created by us to explain the function of the universe. And I said, no, we discovered it. 
it already exists. Those laws are already in place, and we figured them out mathematically. Well, what he was saying is ultimately when you get into this higher theoretical physics, there's mathematics all over the place, and they're creating new numbers to understand it, new mathematics to understand it. And he's going, and whoever put it in notion was a mathematician, which implies intelligence, which means somebody who is really smart with math created the entire universe. And he said that, and he's a theoretical physicist. Now, I don't think he's a Christian, but he's admitting it himself. They are discovering that, and the Bible declares that, and so he is just proving, a secular scientist is proving what the Bible has to say. This is our job as disciples to pass this information on to others as disciples so they are not confused and they are able to defend the faith. So that's just on the origin, morality. What can I do and what can I get away with? That's what most disciples want to know. Your children, you instruct them what's right and wrong. And how many times do they do wrong? 100% of the time, right? But you tell them that's wrong, there's going to be consequences for that. Well, God has his own Ten Commandments, and he has his own idea of telling us what is right and what is wrong, and it's created throughout the context of Scripture. Also, if your children, I love this about some of the middle schoolers that come to youth group, they're always asking and they open their mouth after they ask. They go, why? And they, they, they want to know certain things like, well, how come? And their mouth remains open whenever they ask it. They're just like little birds. You know, their mouths are open. They're going, feed me. And you give them this information. And then you see their mouth shut. They go, oh. Like they, they kind of sit back. And oh, they get the understanding. That's what we're supposed to do with the disciples. Somebody has a thirst for the Word of God, we're supposed to satisfy that. And you can't do that unless you go through the entirety of Scripture as a disciple yourself and disseminate it to others. And then finally, where are we going? The last time I was in the youth group, the kids had questions about heaven. Well, what's it like? And their eyes would get wide open, their mouths would open, and you would answer that and go... No, yeah, that's what it's going to... And you would explain everything to them, and they were just like sponges, just soaking this up, and you couldn't finish one question before they had another one, and I would have to tell them, write it down right now, because I'd have to finish the explanation. And that's somebody who wants to be a disciple, and I'm telling you, it does great things for your walk when you can find people like that, that just want to know what God's will is, how he has instructed us in this life, where we're going, what is right and wrong, and all the whys get answered for them. Then, So this is doctrine. This is one thing, the application of instruction, teaching them everything or to obey everything I've commanded you. We are to give them doctrine. That's the first thing we're supposed to give them. And also, we're supposed to tell them, instruct them, how you practice your Christianity. In other words, put some shoe leather to what you have learned doctrinally. For instance, fellowship, prayer, breaking of bread, life in the spirit, walking by faith, purity, endurance, obedience, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. All of these things we are to instruct. And God mentions, for instance, mercy, but we have to give examples of mercy and how we're supposed to carry it out in our own lives, like extending forgiveness. That's a real practical one, especially with middle schoolers. 
middle schoolers are getting offended all the time. They are distraught. They don't know what to do. And you have to explain to them about mercy and forgiveness and extending that, and even to the youth and even to adults. So for all practical purposes, how long is the disciple supposed to remain in training? Have you ever thought about that? Some people would say, well, you're in it forever. Well, you're really not. As a disciple, when you become fully mature, you are done with your discipleship. You get new challenges to implement and to apply what you have learned, but you are basically fully mature. Now, when it comes to this maturity, we're supposed to move on, as it says in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we're supposed to move on from the elementary teachings of the Christian faith. Those things are baptism, laying on hands, and judgment, and the world to come, those types of things. If we have mastered that list, we are moving on in our discipleship. If we have not mastered that list, we are still in training. For instance, a disciple, somebody who likes to handle the Word of God properly, as it says in 2 Timothy, you want to study to show yourself approved. If you're handling it properly, if you know what you're doing with Scripture, you're able to take out that sword and just wield it at any time. And that's what God wants us to do. Now, a soldier who is 12 years old does not have the skill to take out a sword and use it properly. A, a warrior who is 29 can use that sword. Now, Eric, you have swords at your house, right? Big plastic ones about this long. I've seen video of Eric. And who else was doing it with you? Oh, Johnny, yeah. I saw a video of you and Johnny. And they had I'm full-on swords, you know, the they're like this long, right? And they're battling with these swords back and forth, just clashing them. And you see this video. And Johnny, I'm sorry, Eric, but Johnny was just whooping them. He was in the military. <laughs> and he could handle that thing. You could tell he was skilled with this sword. Now, the military, he was a Marine. He was a firefighter. But for some reason, he was he's bigger than you. He could just handle that sword a lot better. And you want to hang around people that are good with the sword, Right? If you're in the military, you want to know how to use a sword or use a gun. Same thing in Christianity. You want to hang around somebody who knows more than you. You want to read more. I just finished the book, The Pursuit of God by Tozer. And it was written probably in the 50s, but it was still applicable today. It's such a good book. I, I could see this Tozer guy just pulling out that sword and slicing and dicing and piercing. And I'm just going, wow, this is so rich. This is so good. And that's what we want to be to others who are coming up in the faith. We want to instruct them. When a, a child, you, you give them a baseball, you say, this is how you hold it. This is how you throw a knuckleball. This is how you catch the ball. This is how you run. Or horseback riding. You don't just put a kid on a horse and say, yeah, and slap the horse and have the horse take off, right? Kid's going to fall right over. It's going to go over and get hurt. You want to make sure, and by the way, young Christian zealots, they are f fantastic for creating damage. Uh, they, they know just enough to be zealous, to go out for the Lord. But they pull out their sword and they start stabbing everybody wherever they go. And they go, oh, you want to accept Christ? Fine! And then they move on to the next one. And they're not doing some healing action on the individual or instructing them. And so that's what we're supposed to do. The application of instruction, the practice, how we carry out our walks. We want to make sure we teach temperance and perseverance and long-suffering, all of those things. And by the way, the third thing under this application of instruction is endurance. We are supposed to make sure 
that we put our hand to the plow. We don't stop. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. It's a life of sacrifice where you give up things. You may give up sleep. You may give up uh, some work time in order to instruct those who need to be discipled. Now going on to the next one, assurance of companionship. Uh, Jesus left off with this in verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I asked the same question at the beginning. Why would he tell us he's the one in authority? Well, because what he is going to tell us next, he didn't want anybody to usurp. Why did he tell us at the end, and surely I'm with you always even to the very end of the age? Because it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to suffer and there will not be necessarily anyone around you to assist you except for Christ himself. You will find that you may be alone, that nobody comes alongside and assists you. Matter of fact, those people who would be closest to you would resist you the most. When I got saved, it was my family that resisted me the most. And then, of course, you start going out and witnessing and you experience it from the outside as well. But we are supposed to make sure that we are willing uh, to be hated for the sake of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, And all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. In other words, it's going to be difficult, and you might even lose your life depending on where you go to make disciples and to evangelize. Luke twenty-one seventeen says, All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. And he's not talking about the physical hair, because for those of us who have fewer of them, we're not going to be that concerned. It's this idea, metaphorically, in the future, your new body will live forever. You're not going to perish. You're going to be able to continue. So the <laughs> conclusion of this, Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority, and he has instructed disciples to go and make disciples. Secondly, we are to go into all the world and make these disciples, not just locally, but to all the world. Thirdly, disciples are to be those who get baptized, which symbolizes suffering, physical death, burial, and resurrection. Fourth, we are to be or teach and be obedient to the teachings of Christ, doctrine, practice, and endurance. And fifth, God will be with us. Now, that's what God calls us to do as far as being a disciple. And again, if, if we're not being a disciple, we are being disobedient. And it is going to cost us. Now, on your list that you have here, you have some fill-ins. I, I tried to think of a way to communicate it to you that is just fill it in. These are the things I need to know. This is not an exhaustive list. It takes the whole scripture to give you a list. But these are the ones like are at the top, right? And I may have left off one or two, but uh, this will get you going if you ever are in doubt what a disciple is supposed to look like. Number one, a disciple lays down his, their life for God and for others. Uh, John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so a disciple will lay down his life figuratively and physically if necessary. Uh, it says in Scripture that the shepherd will even lay down his life for the sheep. And being a disciple is one who is a follower of Christ. And if we are fully trained, we will be like our teacher. And so in all ways, we are to be 
that sacrifice. And that is the next one. A disciple is sacrificial. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so in all ways, whether it's by life or by resource or by attitude, we are to sacrifice ourselves. Philippians 2, a very common verse, it says we are to consider others better than ourselves. Thirdly, a disciple is generous in giving time and resources. Remember King David, he wanted to offer sacrifice to God. And he went up to Aruna and he said, you have a threshing floor here and I'd like to buy this threshing floor in order to sacrifice to God. And Aruna said, it's yours, king. You can have it. And David said, I will not sacrifice something that costs me nothing. In other words, we are supposed to give to the point where it costs us. If a millionaire <clears throat> gives $1,000 in a tithe, is he sacrificing? No, he's not. Remember the example that Jesus gave about the widow with the two mites? It's not even worth two pennies. And she gave it, but it was all she had as opposed to those who would drop the money bags and would be praised for giving so much. They were not giving so much. It is in proportion to what we have that determines how generous and sacrificial we are. And so we have to make that determination. Are we going to give God something that costs us nothing? If we do, we really have no reward. God wants us to sacrifice that. Now, a lot of times this will be abused uh, by churches and they will tell you to dig deep and it's seed faith money and it, God will just multiply it. And I get sick and tired of those televangelists doing that and I recently reviewed some of those guys too and how they just, they want nothing but money. Remember Creflo Dollar needed to buy a multi-million dollar jet? And remember Oral Roberts, when he was still alive, he needed $8 million or God was going to take him home? I say, take him home. You know, it's time. You are done, buddy. You are fleecing the flock of God. And so we want to make sure that we are not pressing the body and burdening them in order to build a ministry. It's God who builds the ministry. It's not us. That's why here you guys are familiar with it. We don't pass the bag. It's not that we haven't or we won't in the future. We just don't do it. And you guys are responsible to God. You know what you're giving. That's great. And God knows what you're giving. That's even better because then the onus is on the individual. It's not the church that is putting the onus on the individual. It is God himself. And so we are supposed to be generous in our time and in our resources. In First Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And this is referring to the rich. And by the way, if you haven't traveled the world lately, we are the rich. And so we can be generous. You might not think you're rich, but compared to the rest of the world, we are pretty rich. And so we have this command in Scripture. And also, some people feel... I'm going to relate this story to... One of the people we visited was up in Idaho. And... This person works in the church up in Idaho, and she was just talking about the workings of the church. And it's a mega church. 
And in that mega church, we, we were talking about the leadership and we we're talking about bylaws. We, I mean, we just, we got into the nuts and bolts of ministry. And it got into the idea of giving. And she shook her head and said, you know, the church just doesn't give. And uh, she was lamenting it. And I remember years ago, I kind of did a study on how much we gave as a church. And it was probably over a decade ago. I don't know what the, the breakdown is now. But the average, if everybody was giving in the church, it was about $17 a week that everybody gave. And I looked at that, and I knew that there were some people that weren't giving. And the person I talked to in Idaho, they said, you know, there was even leadership. The pastor got challenged by some other pastors at a pastor's conference. Say, check on your leadership. Make sure your leadership is giving to the ministry because they're supposed to be example to everybody else who is out there. And so they didn't tell everybody. There's just a couple of people that did. They checked it. The pastor never knew who it was. And they went through and they said, well, there's like seven people that aren't even given, and they're pretty high up inside the church. And so uh, some people were designated. And by the way, it was only, I think, two people that checked it. And then the people that weren't giving, they went and asked them. And one of the people that they asked, the person said, I only give cash. That's how I do it. You know, I work as a waitress and I have cash and I just give cash. They said, okay, fine. That's great. That's wonderful. They trusted them at their word. And the other people, you know, they were exhorted in a gentle way. Look, if you believe in Christ, you're supposed to be one who gives not only to those outside the church, but primarily where you receive your feeding spiritually, that's what you're supposed to do. And so this is pretty much uh, an epidemic throughout the church. Those people who have a lot less tend to give a lot more. They've done studies. There's, you can read Christianity Today and they talk about that. We are simply supposed to be like King David. We're supposed to give something that cost us something. That's the way we're supposed to be as disciples. And I'm going to go on from that. Next one is, a disciple is not slack. Oh, I worded this wrong, didn't I? Cross out in. A disciple is not slack, but pursues fellowship. So you can cross out in there to word it correctly. <clears throat> in other words, somebody who would like to be a disciple, they are attending Bible study, they are attending church. They are going to the special events. They never say, eh, I'm not going to go. I don't know. I got some things to do. I have to cut the lawn. I have to do my nails. I, you know, I got to bake some cookies. Whatever it is, I mean, you can come up with all kinds of excuses. But if you're being a disciple, you are not going there so much for yourself. You're going there for everybody else. I can tell you this, that it has been the case in the past years, that if somebody especially who heads up a ministry or is in leadership, if they don't go to an event, an event people always say, well, where's so-and-so? You know, where's Eugene? Eugene's not here. How come Eugene's not here? I don't know. Well, where's Cleophas? I don't know where Cleophas is. She didn't show up, you know. And maybe you might ask them, and then you come to find out, well, you know, I just wanted to take a nap. It, I... I'm telling you, the life of a disciple is difficult. You're supposed to sacrifice even when you don't want. I don't want to go. You know, I, I don't want to be a part of that. I just want to stay. I want to catch up on some sleep. You know, if it's something like, well, I got a hernia and I need an operation, okay, you know, go ahead. You don't have to be there. Like, I wasn't planning on any of the people that went to Cambodia and they came back today. 
to get back. Poor Steve. You have to pray for Steve. He was uh, coming back on the plane. And on the planes, usually you have the, uh, the computer that's there and it tells you where you are and your altitude and your airspeed and how long to your destination and what time it was at the destination you or the place that you came from and where you're going. And he looked at that and it said eight hours. You know, and you have eight hours in this plane before you're going to get to LAX. And he goes, okay. And he took a nap. He did a few other things. He felt like it was four hours. And he looks at it again and goes, six hours to the next place you have to get to. And it, it was just like purgatory. You know, it wasn't ending. This plane ride is taking forever. And it, it's, it's kind of like that. You know, you, you think this is so hard. This is difficult. You have to endure. But God calls us to that. And it's for the sake of the other people. It is not for our sake, although we get the side benefit of being there in fellowship. And you might be able to minister to somebody there and add to their fellowship. That's the point of being present. God is always present with us, and so we're supposed to be like him and be present. We're not supposed to be slack. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you guys see the day approaching? Just look at the news. If you don't see the day approaching, it'll open your eyes. Next one, fifth, a disciple is given to prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. First uh, Timothy 2.1 says, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Of course, Timothy is a pastor here. But this applies to all of us, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are supposed to be a people of prayer. Sixth, and by the way, prayer, it is probably one of the most difficult spiritual exercises you will run across, unless you have the gift of prayer, gift of intercession. Because when you start praying, how long does it take before your mind starts wandering? I will tell you this. If you pray out loud, it helps. If it, it, now, I don't recommend it on a plane, praying out loud. But if you feel led, go ahead and do it. But find a place, we call it in the past uh, a prayer closet, where you can pray out loud. And it will help you to remain focused or if you're in a prayer meeting, open your mouth and pray. And I know it's difficult for a lot of believers to pray out loud. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'll say something that's stupid. And it won't say, people will think I'm dumb. Well, you know what? We're all dumb. We don't know as much as God. Just open your mouth. There's nothing better than a prayer that comes from somebody who hasn't learned how to pray yet. It's like a child learning how to walk. You, yeah. You're doing it, you know, and somebody prays for the first time. You go, this is great. Oh, it's just so pure. It's just dripping with purity because the person, they're learning how to do it for the first time. And the old salts that have prayed, it sounds like something written in the Lutheran catechism, you know, and it just flows out with all these flowery words. So we want to make sure we are given to prayer. Sixth, a disciple seeks out the knowledge of God. They know doctrine. In Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees came over to Jesus and they thought they were going to trip him up because they didn't believe in the resurrection or in angels and they gave him a dilemma that if a woman married somebody and he died and he had seven brothers and she married each one of the brothers as was the custom of the Jews to have children raised up for the first brother who had died 
uh, they said, well, when she gets to heaven, if she's been married to all these guys, whose husband will she have or who will be her husband? And Jesus turned to them and said, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures. We want to make sure we are not in error. That verse I gave you earlier, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Uh, We've had in the past people come in and teach bad things to the body, not from the pulpit, not from a Bible study uh, venue, but they will go through the body and they will teach bad things. Like in, I think it's John chapter 11, it talks about, do you believe in me? I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will never die. Do you believe this? And this person, this particular person I'm thinking of, would go through the body and say, if you have enough faith, you won't die. Do you know who recently died that taught that? Jan Crouch. You know who Jan Crouch is? Paul and Jan Crouch, TBN. Jan Crouch used to say, well, you just have to have enough faith and God will heal you. Well, she's dead now and she is not alive. Apparently, she didn't have enough faith. I mean, that is just bad doctrine and I don't mean, you know, to be irreverent, but I do mean to be irreverent. Somebody teaches a doctrine like that, you've got to be kidding me. You're crazy to teach that kind of thing. We had somebody in the body teaching that. If you just have enough faith, you don't have to die physically. Are you nuts? The Bible says that we are all under a curse. Unless God transforms our body in the rapture, we're dying. We're going under six feet. The same person went through the church and somebody would be wearing a hat in the church. No, it's okay. A woman can have her head covered. But a guy cannot have his head covered. And he would go up to people inside the church and say, you know you need to take off your hat. You know you're sinning by wearing that hat inside a church. And it was like, off with his head. You know, we, we took him to the side and said, don't be teaching that. We wanted to correct him, but he was obstinate. Obviously, he's not at the church today. Or are you still here, Eric? Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Going on, seven. A disciple humbly serves. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so a disciple does not back away from service. In my opinion, like for instance, some would say, I just took a break, right? I really didn't take a break. I just stepped to the side and said, God, what do you want, you know? Do you want me to go this way, that way? What do you want me to do? Seeking after God, seeing what his will was. As far as taking a break, well, yeah, I I guess technically there is this taking a break, but you don't take it for very long. You just get right back in the game. If you're part of the team, what are there, 11 people on a baseball team? Is that right? That actually play? There are 11 people on a baseball team, and the catcher goes, I'm taking a break. Really? Right in the middle of the game? You don't do that. You don't jump ship in the midst of the storm. You don't just say, well, I'm kind of done. You can get somebody else. No, replace yourself. You know, we have always taught in this ministry, and when I came from La Mesa, if somebody was serving in a ministry, you wanted to make sure that you were there until you replaced yourself, unless God removed you. You know, if God said you're going to move on, replace yourself. Why do I say that? It's because there is such a burden placed on the rest of the body 
when that doesn't happen. Now, she's not here, but I'm going to talk about her. Poor Janie. When people don't show up over in the Sunday school, guess who takes it? Janie does. And constantly, people will not show up. And I don't mean this in a, a rebuke kind of way. It's just maybe it's a light admonishment. We need to teach this to others. Now, you guys are here. It's wonderful. You're here in the church. You know, I'm, I'm really not... I'm sure talking to you guys, but there are people that will come and go, you know, I, I just don't feel well today. I think I'm going to stay home. Those kids are counting on you being there, and Janie is counting on that individual being there. Don't just say, I'm not coming today. Now, if you're going to have that attitude, don't sign up. Just stay off to the side because it becomes a burden to the rest of the body. And again, Philippians 2 says, we're to consider other, others better than ourselves. And we're to put them to the front. Okay, So we're to humbly serve as a disciple. Eight, a disciple is not slack but diligent in their commitment to God and to the church. Proverbs 18.9. Now this is the verse I told you earlier or alluded to it. The one who is slack in his work is brother to the one who destroys. For those of you who have been employers, have you ever had an employee that is just slack in their work? (laughs) You're grimacing. (laughs) Of course you I mean, it is just, it is such a burden to have. And and I've had, I don't know, if I've had one employee, I've had a hundred. And sometimes you get these guys that it's just like lemon juice to the teeth. It's like smoke in the eyes. It's like a thorn, a sliver that you get in your hand that you can't get out. It's just, it is such a bother. And as Christians, we cannot do that. Not only are we supposed to not be slack in our commitment to God and to the church, but we're not supposed to be slack with our employers, those people we work with too. If you want to be a good disciple of Christ, be diligent in everything. Have them say, that's enough. Okay, you're doing way too much. Just calm down a little bit, Everetty Bunny. Just take a break for a second. Everything is just fine here. You can just slow down. That's the way it should be. For us as believers and followers in Christ, it is good to be zealous. And that is the next one. A disciple avoids sin and is zealous for the Lord. Proverbs twenty three seventeen says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. And by the way, zealousness or fear of the Lord here means adoration, respect, reverence, and appreciation. And so that's, that's what we're supposed to look like as disciples. When we show up here at the church or, you know, the Lord takes you somewhere else and you're serving somewhere else in the future, wherever God would take any one of us, We are supposed to act in such a way to stand out for the Lord, not for ourselves, not so that people would give us pats on the back. We are serving Jesus Christ himself. So do you guys have any questions or comments about being a disciple? Did I skip nine? (laughs) A disciple abides in Christ and bears fruit. They love and do not fall away. I didn't give you those scriptures, did I? John 15.4 says, Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. And so this idea of abiding in Christ, um, it's not difficult to remain in Christ. And when he says, like if you abide in the vine, uh, I take care of grapes, lots of grapes. And 
roses too. I don't have to do anything to the grapes or the roses. I just prune them and water them. And guess what happens? I mean, just there are bushels of grapes on these vines I take care of and roses. I have to go in and prune them now. They're not doing so well. And I prune them back. And as soon as you do that, guess what? The fruit just comes. If you abide in Christ, you will produce so much fruit. And you'll look back in your life and you go, Wow, look where the Lord has brought me. You don't want to say, look where I've gotten to. It's look where the Lord has taken me. Look what the Lord has done, how much fruit he has produced. Now, Scripture says the man who saves souls is wise. We want to be reaching out to those people who are out there, and God will give you the crown of wisdom, the crown of glory, if you just simply abide in him. It is not difficult to do, except for the fact you have to get up. You have to apply yourself. And sometimes subduing the flesh, that can be a little bit difficult. But staying close to Christ, he assists us in that. So any other questions besides missing number nine? We're all good. Y'all set to sign up to be a disciple? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it instructs us. What we're supposed to do, you have prepared the way for us. You have given us your word. You have shown us what is right and wrong and why are we supposed to do what we do. You have provided everything. You're so good to us. You show us your grace on a regular basis. And Father, we would ask that you would enable us. Enable us to go out there and reproduce ourselves. To uh, be committed to your word to service. And Lord, whatever may be in the minds of individuals in here, I pray that you would bring that to fruition, whatever they could do to be about your business. For we know that those things, those tasks, those acts of service, you have prepared in advance for us to do. So Father, whatever lies ahead, we know that your hand will be upon it, for you have blessed it, you have foreordained it. Help us to be obedient in this pursuit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Thanks for coming, guys.